Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. I'm Tony, and today is episode 130 of the podcast, where I sit down with author, speaker, and generational guru, John Basing. Now, John has a brand new resource out called No Be Live. And I think what you're going to find in our conversation today is that we dive deep in the idea of leadership capacities for generations. What does it mean to reach the next generation? And how do we wrap it all up nice and neat in our faith? He's part of a nonprofit called Impact 360. We talk about that. We talk about college age kids. We talk about what it's like to be a a professor in college these days. I think you're going to love this conversation. And hey, if you do love it, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Spotify. You can do it pretty much anywhere and subscribe. I use an app called Overcast, which I love. I actually listen to most of my podcasts at 1.5 speed. But all that to say, if you subscribe, it's the best way to make sure that you don't miss any future content coming from the Reclamation Podcast and I can begin to share with you some of the incredible things that we are doing with Spirit and Truth, one of which is a conference. That's right. We'll be at a conference coming up this March, the Spirit and Truth Conference. I would love to give you a discount code. So if you go to spiritandtruth.life and then click on the conference button, once you sign up, if you put reclamation in there, we're going to save you 10% on your registration freeze here in Dayton, Ohio. 10% Spirit and Truth Conference. We've got some incredible speakers coming, guys like Kevin Watson and uh, so many more. Marion Hayes, I'll be there. Of course, Matt Reynolds, Maggie Ulmer, so many great speakers that you need to hear. This is what it means to be a part of a network. We're connecting with like-minded individuals, helping renew the local church. So, hey, come hang out with us in Dayton, The third week of March, you don't want to miss it, Spirit and Truth Conference. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with John Basie. Back to the podcast. I'm excited today to have author, speaker, and researcher John Basie with us. John, thanks so much for being here today. It's great to be here, Tony. Thanks for having me. And uh, today we're going to talk about one of my favorite discussions in the world. We're going to talk about discipleship and specifically your brand new resource, No Be Live, a 360 approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era. Um, and so I wanted to start by asking you to give us a wor- your, your working definition of the word discipleship. Yeah, this is, a, this is one of the central questions, isn't it, uh, when we talk about not just church life, but but life for believers in general. Mm. Uh, discipleship, we would say at Impact 360 Institute, is apprenticeship unto Jesus. We are his mm. apprentices. And uh, some some in the Christian tradition have referred to discipleship in this way. We think it's helpful. Uh, we don't think it's the only way to describe discipleship, but we do think uh, discipleship unto Jesus is is not so dissimilar to uh, an apprentice who might, say, uh, work alongside uh, a a master carpenter, uh, learning how to do what he does and the way he does it, or some other trade, perhaps. 
if you had an apprentice there in the studio uh, teaching her or him how to do what you do, uh, you would in effect be discipling uh, that young person to do what you do uh, in the most excellent way that you've learned how to do it. Now, um, this is obviously, you know, Matthew 28, the Great Commission is one of the primary texts that we use when we talk about making disciples go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's right. But for most Christians, what I've, what I've found is that we've never been discipled. So I'm guess I'm, I'm curious, John, were you discipled as a young man or currently being discipled? What's that look like in your life? Yes, I was, uh, I was fortunate and uh, very thankful to grow up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, my father is a retired minister. He's been a minister for as long as I can remember. And so with my parents, my mother and my father, they discipled me uh, in their home. Mm-hmm. From there, uh, I, I can remember really getting this, the sense that I'm, I was beginning to own my faith as a result of deep community and a discipleship process that happened in uh, our church's youth group starting in 11th grade. And, and that was, that was an energizing thing for me. And I started to realize there's much more to this, this discipleship thing than just praying a Mm -hmm. prayer and realizing I have the fire insurance, so to speak, uh, to get into heaven. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then from there in college, there were some mentors some key mentors in college, graduate school, who uh, discipled me further as I uh, drew closer to Christ. Uh, got married in 1997. Uh, my wife of nearly uh, 25 years now and I have have had mentors who have discipled us uh, even now, and we look we look to those people. So that's that's a really important thing that I I'm glad you brought up. I, I do think it's one of the, we always talk about here at the church and um, in, in a lot of my work that disciple making, it has to be intentional, it has to be relational, and it has to be reproducible, right? And those are those are kind of the three characteristics of a good disciple making relationship. And that that matches up really well with your apprenticeship, because it's more than just teaching someone the trade, but it's teaching someone how to do the trade on their own. Yeah, I think that feels like a very important distinguish. Uh, distinction when we're talking about disciple making. Uh, when you think about your mentors that have poured into you, is there anything that you've picked up from them that you still do today? Or like when you think about your daily disciplines, what you're like, what can you attribute to the people who have poured into you over the, the years? Yes, this is a great cr- question. And it, it gets to the heart of this book, uh, No Be Live. And what I would say, Tony, is the, the, the mentors, the, the people who are farther along in their faith journey uh, than what I am have learned how to live their life holistically uh, Mm. honoring Christ. They, they have learned over the course of their journey with Jesus that discipleship is not just something we do in church on Sunday and Wednesday night or uh, at at the men's breakfast. 
it's not parsed out like that. It, it is living life holistically as unto him, which is why the book is titled Know, Be, and Live. Uh, these are aspects mm. of who we are as image bearers of God. And so that's what I would say is, is the best mentors uh, that I've had are ones who have lived holistically uh, as unto Christ. Now, much of your research is centered around Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have two questions that I want to ask you. The, f- the first one is, is can you give us a, um, some parameters on who Gen Z is? And then the second one is, how does one get called to ministry to a particular generation? I'm curious how this call manifested itself in your life. Sure. Yeah, according, according to the Barna studies that, that we have used, and, and this has been something that's been a real blessing for us, uh, my, my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Morrow, has led our team here at the Institute to partner with uh, the Barna organization to produce uh, groundbreaking research on Gen Z and specifically uh, the way that they think about faith. The first study came out in 2018. Uh, we just had another one uh, come out earlier this year, a follow-up study. And so uh, different sociologists and researchers might might consider Gen Z uh, uh, differently from uh, just in terms of the window of time. But what we, uh, the way, the way that we think about Gen Z, they, they really, most of them were born anywhere from, from 1999 to 2015. And that's, that's the, the Barna research that, uh, that we, that we tend to use. So, 1999 to 2015 is is that window of time. And how do we get called to this this kind of ministry with Gen Z? Well, I was called, as I look back on it now, uh, back in 1997, this was a year after I graduated college in South Carolina, I realized, you know, I think I'm, I'm not sure what exactly this is going to look like, but I'm pretty sure that the Lord is calling me to walk alongside other believers in some form or mm. fashion, regardless of, of their age and generation. And so that set me on a course in graduate school and uh, did master's, PhD, and uh, became a, a professor and administrator. And as you would know, Tony, the... <laughs> Those of us who who work in in the higher ed industry, we we age, but the freshmen they stay the same age every year. Every year they come in and they're seventeen or eighteen, yeah. uh, and and that's how it works. And so, uh, first I was working with millennials, and now they've pretty much aged out, and they're in the workforce. Uh, Gen Z, they are the generation now that is dominating higher education. And um, that's not to say that there aren't adult learners as well. There certainly are and many of them. But in terms of traditional uh, residential-based higher education, it's definitely Gen Z. And so that's where we find our calling. That's what our institute is, uh, is up to right now. Our, our mission is to cultivate leaders who follow Jesus. That's the institute's mission. And we are thrilled to welcome 
uh, Gen Zers every year who who are part of our gap year, our our uh, year long fellows program, biblical worldview and servant leadership. Uh, our masters, our two year accredited masters program in leadership uh, that also has a, a spiritual formation track and uh, some really fantastic summer programs in worldview and leadership as well. So right now, Gen Z is the population uh, that is is coming to us. They are the apprentices uh, who are seeking to be like Jesus, and we're privileged to serve them. Mm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's so important and the work that you guys are doing at the Institute looks actually, I, I was like, man, it, I wonder at 41, am I, is it too late for me to get in? Cause it's just, it looks awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and I yeah. thought, man, that'd be a lot of fun to, a lot of fun to go. And uh, what, what incredible resources, you know, I, I'm curious, I'm curious as, as you, um, as you so appropriately said, you, you know, you're, you're aging, but the freshmen don't. Right. And, and what an interesting view from being in higher education for as long as you have. What have you learned about God and, and the world as you've seen generation after generation come sit in your class? And, and you're not that old. So it's not, I'm not talking right. like 60 years of higher ed here, but like um, but like it, I, I would imagine there are some realizations every year about who's coming in next. I'm curious if you could share any of those with us. Absolutely. I can remember sitting, not sitting, actually, I was standing in the front of the class. It was 2006 or 2007 uh, here, here at the Institute. This, this was in our first or second year of our um, accredited, what we call our, our fellows program now. And thinking, you know, okay, so I'm called to a teaching ministry with millennials. Uh, at that time, uh, millennials, uh, they, they were the, the generation coming through and starting, uh, starting their education, finishing their education in some cases. Uh, but realizing as we get to 2010, 12, uh, and, then, and then now finally to today, okay, Gen Zers are different in some key ways. One of the key ways, is they are digital natives. And uh, you've probably talked to some other guests about this. They, most of them don't remember a time when their parents didn't have mobile devices. And I, wow. I cannot overemphasize how much that has radically changed, not just the classroom, but discipleship in general. When a young person who claims to follow Christ is constantly being followed around uh, by all kinds of messages because of the phone that they're mm. carrying, the notifications, the calls from whomever, not just home. Some of them come from home, but from friends. And it's really not even the calls. It's the texting, right? And the, the constant bombardment from this technology that on its own as a tool, of course, can be used for amazing things. I mean, we're having this interview today because of incredible technology. And in this case, uh, I, would, I would say we're stewarding the technology well. 
Well, this is one of the key questions for those who seek to disciple Gen Z, and that is, how do we disciple a generation that is so deeply steeped in a virtual reality? Mm. And and this is this is just a we're all learning as we go. Uh, I wouldn't say by any means that I or anyone at our institute has fully figured this out. This is why uh, we commissioned the Barna Group to help us. Uh, with with the research, what does it look like to disciple this generation, uh, given the technology that that they have imbibed really since birth? Yeah, well, it's such an interesting idea, and and it seems like um, it seems like the infiltration of technology, like the access to it, has gotten so much earlier too. We, we actually had uh, George Barna himself on the, the podcast, and I know he's not with the Barna Group anymore, but I think he was episode 114. Hmm. And one of the things that he said is that most of our worldview is already formed by 13. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious, as you're bringing Gen Z into the, um, as you're bringing Gen Z into the, the, the Institute and you're shaping and you're giving them a, a uh, some challenging ideas. What worldview are they bringing in with them, and it, and how hard or easy is it to shift that to a biblical worldview? That's right. That's right. It's a great question. Our answer to that here, Tony, might be a little different from someone uh, who's working, say, at a state university, perhaps even a traditional Christian college that allows non-believing students to enroll. And and there are some fantastic Christian colleges out there who have a tremendous ministry because their enrollment model is that way. Many many non-believing students come to Christ because uh, of of faithful believers and disciplers on those campuses. Uh, The same for state universities and the campus ministries and so forth. But to answer your question, uh, it what I would say is uh, okay. So this is the part where you might want to edit. <laughs> remind me of the que- <laughs> remind me the question. Uh, what worldview are they bringing in? Yes, and what um, what how hard or easy is it to to yeah. to shift it? I, I got off on a tangent. I, I apologize. So, so the the world no, that there's a long question too. It doesn't make it easy. Yeah, uh, the worldview that they're bringing with them to the institute, for the most part, is is a is a fairly uh, biblically centered worldview because of our own enrollment model, and and we we will only allow followers of Jesus to come to our program, not because we think there's no value for non-believers, but because we want for all of our students to start at a certain level. And and we need to be certain that they have all committed themselves to Christ, uh, even if they're uh, somewhat younger believers. Now, the deeper question I think there is, okay, how biblical really is their worldview? Hmm. 
And that would be a fair question to ask. Uh, the Barna research indicates that only 4%, only 4% of Gen Z holds to a truly biblical worldview. And, and there are certain parameters around the definition of biblical worldview that, uh, that, that help to shape uh, that result. It's, it's a, it's a pretty narrow set. Uh, this would exclude those who have, have, uh, pretty much hitched their wagon to progressive Christianity and might say things like, well, yeah, sure. I I love Jesus, but he's not the only way. Well, we, we would say, no, that's, that's not a biblical worldview. Uh, on, on our definition and on the definition that, that Barna uses in the research, Jesus is the only way. Mm. And, and when you get that specific, uh, it, it narrows down uh, to 4%. And uh, there are other questions, wow. you know, Jesus makes a difference in my everyday life and uh, other, other items, uh, the, the way I think, act, uh, behave on a daily basis. Uh, makes makes a difference because of my relationship to Christ. Uh, ethics are uh, in no small part attached to uh, my relationship uh, to Jesus, and and uh, morality uh, is is affected because of the relationship I have with Him. All of those things uh, are are a part of of what goes into that definition. So so when we get that specific. What I would say we've noticed over the years is that our our students love Jesus, but and, and there is no but to that part of it, I would say, and we have to help them recognize that that the culture has also affected the way they think about their own relationship with him. In some cases, they've grown up in churches where uh, they're surrounded by believers who who love Jesus, but but the church has not taught them how to cultivate the life of the mind. For example, uh, mm. good thinking. How do we think well about what's happening in the culture? Uh, and before we even do that, how do we think well about God's special revelation that He's given to us, the Bible, and and is it true from cover to cover? And does God really mean what he says in the scriptures? Uh, can I have confidence that what he says in the scriptures is true? Uh, does God lead me uh, in my life? And so I'll tell you, Tony, one of the things that we find year after year, and it's more true now than uh, when we started the Institute in uh, 2006, we have to help young Christ followers understand that relativism is not true. Moral relativism. Mm. If we hold to a truly biblical worldview, that excludes, by definition, moral relativism, the idea that right and wrong are determined by a certain context or a certain culture, uh, or even a more pernicious view than that would be uh, moral subjectivism. It is determined, morals are deter- determined solely by me 
as an individual. And so. Yeah. That's, have, a, that's that whole idea about like, I'm living my truth. You yes. Know, when, you know, that's you're exactly living, right. Yeah, my, my truth or, you know, I, I don't feel like that's, and there's anything wrong. You know, it, it becomes, there is no right or wrong, right? It's what's well, all subjective, right or wrong. That's right. That's right. And, and in the book, uh, we have a chapter on, on postmodernism. Uh, two of our mm-hmm. two of our own team members, Ed and Dana Bort, did a fantastic job of of talking about the effects of of postmodern culture and thinking on the life of the mind and Gen Z in particular. And they talk about that very thing, where uh, you know we hear people say it all the time, and they're not always even members of Gen Z. Sometimes sometimes they are uh, members of of Gen X. You know, they'll say, "You do you," right? Uh, whatever, whatever works for you. Uh, and we, we hear young people saying all the time, things like what you just mentioned. Uh, well, this is, this is my truth. And, uh, I was watching a a video on, on Facebook just the other day of, of a young lady who was, who was talking about something. and, And she said that very phrase, this is my truth. And maybe some of you guys can identify with it. So I would say, Tony, that that is one of the key things that we're we're keeping track of, and and we're just as as we move into the future, uh, with culture such as it is, uh, political instability, cultural instability, there is no question that uh, a secular culture wants us to grab on to uh, a moral. Uh, a view of morality that is that is uh, relativistic to its core, such that there is no such thing as objective truth. So, you, you know, the, the reality is a lot of people who are listening to this podcast will be in that millennial um, Gen X generation, right? There's, I'm, I'm probably not hitting that Gen Z target audience very hard. Sure. I know that I do have a couple of kids from, fellowship of Christian athletes who, who I've worked with over the years who, who listen, and I'm super thankful for them. But for the most part, we're talking to people who are going to be disciplers. That's right. To this generation, this Gen Z, right? So um, I'm wondering, can you take us through kind of a, a macro look uh, of, of what, you know, know, be, live is, and, and uh, because I think what you've done is you've created a very loose but very intentional framework for disciple making that would be a valuable place to start. Um, if anyone wants to think about how to approach Gen Z. Yes, this is a great question. And I'm, I'm glad you, you said what you did about your audience for the most part, uh, Gen Xers, uh, are, are the parents of Gen Z. And so for, for any of your listeners out there who are, uh, your age, my age, I'm, I'm 47. I have three kids who are Gen Zers. Um, this certainly is applicable. And for millennials, uh, your kids, uh, may not, may not uh, be, be quite there. In fact, they're talking now about what's, what's the name of, of generation alpha. That's all they can come up with at the moment. What's the generation that comes after? It's not, it's not a very creative group. That's right. That's right. So, so, but, but, the millennials in your audience certainly are are uh, discipling uh, Gen Z, mm-hmm. and so when we talk about know, be, and live, 
these this is the motto it's it's the motto of impact 360 institute but it's not just a motto the board years ago was very intentional about making no be and live the spiritual transformation pillars on which this institute is built the institute is not about a building uh, it's not about even the incredible programs that we have but it's about the mission uh, that we have moving forward, the mission to cultivate leaders who follow Jesus. And so when we talk about the no, for example, uh, here's what we mean by that. Uh, we talk about knowing Jesus more deeply. And we talk about growing in your understanding of what God has revealed about reality and why Christianity is true. And so this is the part of discipleship that we would call intellectual discipleship. This is uh, a couple of our authors in the book talk about how the church, for, for all of its good efforts in other areas, in large part, the, many churches haven't really hit the bullseye in terms of intellectual discipleship. Does Jesus care about the life of the mind? Uh, do we believe? Colossians, that, that he is the center of all things. He himself holds all things together. And what does that mean for a disciple who wants to study God's created order to understand how the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, literally holds the universe together by the word of his power? Is that something worth studying? Mm. We think it is, and and it requires intellectual, uh, it requires intellectual activity. Uh, we we help our students understand that study itself is a spiritual discipline. Study is an act of worship unto God for the believer. When I'm studying chemistry, or when I'm studying English literature. If I truly believe that God is sovereign over every square inch of the created order, then I will treat my study of these disciplines uh, just as seriously as I treat uh, my theological studies. Now, I want to be careful as I say that and nuance that because certainly the Bible and theology uh, there's something that I'm assuming there, and that is that we have built enough of a solid biblical worldview that we can begin to see the other academic disciplines through the lens of Scripture and sound theology. But intellectual discipleship is is uh, is is what the the no part of who we are is all about. The second part is is B, and we talk about being transformed in our character. We want to be transformed in our character. And we want to discover our identity in Christ and our God-given callings in authentic community. So this, this part of it is, is all about uh, the heart and, and yeah. the way that desires are formed. And uh, mm. Paul talks about this in his letter. In, in, in his letters, Jesus talks about uh, desires and and 
one of the one of the people that uh, has meant a lot to us over the years here at the institute. He's he's now in heaven with with Jesus, but uh, Dallas Willard, who who uh, was um, professor of, of philosophy at the University of Southern California for years and years and years, wasn't only uh, an intellectual philosophy professor, but he was one of the foremost uh, experts in the world of, of spiritual formation. He and Richard Foster and and, and others. And, and he, he talks about desire, uh, in, in many of his works and, uh, even, even before, long before Willard, we have church historians, uh, and, and church fathers like Augustine talking about, uh, Mm -hmm. the way that we come to love the things that we love. Are we, are we, do we have the correct loves are the things that we love the things that uh, Christ would be not just pleased with, but are we loving things in a way that is consistent with the way that he designed us as image bearers? Yeah. He designed us to love himself. And in a fallen world, in a sinful world, uh, it's it's an understatement, isn't it, to say that we get distracted sometimes. <laughs> Sin is much more uh, than a distraction. It's, it's, it's utter corruption. At a minimum, it distracts us. And uh, at, at worst, it, it completely destroys us. And without the Lord's help, uh, we, uh, we find ourselves um, in, a, in a serious downward spiral that, that we just we can't get out of with, with, without his help. But, but that, that being, being transformed in our character, how do we come to love the right things, is, is all mm-hmm. about uh, the B portion. And so in this part of the book, uh, we're, we're talking about things that get at the heart. Things such as uh, we, John Stone Street, for example, president of the, of the Colson Center for, for Christian Worldview, talks about this very thing that I've been sharing. How do we come to love the right things? and uh, the, the great commandment, love of God, love of neighbor. He talks about that and how important it is to get those things in the right order. Have we ever thought as believers, what, what love would look like if Jesus had said, love your neighbor first and then love God, how would that change things? But he didn't, he didn't put it in that order. Yeah. Right. Uh, and he's actually referencing, he's referencing, uh, he, he's, he's referencing the Old Testament, right? Uh, love your God and then love your neighbor. And he's reaffirming, he's, he's taking that and, and mm-hmm. reaffirming it uh, in, in his own day. And he's saying, look, there is, there is a God out there and he has designed you in a certain way. He's designed you to love himself. And because he's designed you to love himself, you are then set free to love others properly. And it must be in that order. And John, in his chapter, talks about uh, some things that can happen when our culture tries to convince us to reverse that order. Love people first and then love God. Um, So that's just a sample uh, of, of what we we talk about in the book and then finally the live portion uh, Tony we uh, this this is where we we say that the no and the be uh, 
they're absolutely fundamental to a life of discipleship, but we have to give those things legs and, and let them go somewhere and we have to do something with them. Right. So uh, we want to live a life of kingdom influence, live a life of kingdom influence. And we unpack that by saying we live a life of spirit powered kingdom influence as we cultivate a servant's heart. And certainly Jesus was the ultimate servant. And uh, in this in this part of the book, uh, we we have various topics uh, where I, I have a chapter on on calling and how to understand uh, God's God's call on our lives. It's only a single chapter. Uh, there's there's not enough space to cover such a comprehensive topic, but hopefully it's 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 helpful. But it's we, fun. it's funny yeah. as I was looking through the book, I was like, oh, you could have written twenty books with all these topics that you covered, right? I think there's. 13 chapters. I'm like, Oh, there's 13 different books in here. But what you, what you've really done is just created a, a palatable sample size of the idea, right? Like that's each, right. each chapter, like, yeah, here's an, here's enough of content to get you started. But if God were to lead you, like if you're really wrestling with your calling, this isn't necessarily a book about calling, but you could get started on discipling someone who's got a desire to figure out their calling. Right. That's, that's exactly right. And And one of the great things about, about a volume like this, Tony, where, where it's an edited multi-contributor volume is uh, the reader can read it straight through if, if he or she wants, or you can take it uh, out of order uh, chapters on their own and uh, and, and they're discrete chapters and they can make sense uh, on their own without having to read other chapters. But uh just a little bit about how, how did we come up with these topics? The way, the way that we decided, the way that we decided what topics to, to bring up and unpack was largely determined by the results of the Barna research itself. So the 2018 study Hmm. on Gen Z uh, that we partnered with Barna uh, again, my my colleague uh, Jonathan Morrow led that effort here at the institute. We took a look at those results and asked ourselves, okay, what are the key areas in which this research has presented uh, results that that could be most helpful for those who are seeking to disciple Gen Z? And, and that's how we came up with the vast majority of these chapters. And, and so we, we let the research itself guide the topics uh, that, that we put into the book. So, so if the research is digging up questions, challenges, uh, and opportunities for Gen Z and saying, here's what we found through the research, this book is designed to help take it to the next step to be uh, hopefully some uh, some helpful solutions to those questions uh, and, and challenges and opportunities that disciplers of Gen Z might be uh, might be open to using. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's pretty brilliant, right? Like take the take the parts of the world that that Gen Z are struggling with the most turn that into the tool that's um, right 
turn that into the tool that we use to disciple them, which feels much like what Jesus did in his ministry, right? Like, Hey, um, you know, this is the, the woman who's about to get stoned story, right? Like it's her stones that are going to kill her, but it's also that she's going to say, be saved, you know, and that's that whole process there of redeeming the brokenness in the world. And that just seems to, to match up really well with, you know, how Jesus did his, his ministry. Right. I mean, that, I think that, that goes together beautifully. That's right. That's right. There's so many good things in this resource. There's so many different voices, contributors, some really, really intelligent people have obviously put in a lot of time and effort into this. As you, as you think about, um, you know, like, man, what, what do you hope comes from this book? What do you hope, uh, you know, if, if one of our Gen Xers who are listening or one of our millennials who are listening, they pick up this book at the end of reading it, what's the desired outcome that you guys are praying for as it comes to this resource? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Tony. And I would say um, the answer is it's similar to if you'd asked the question around any, uh, if you'd asked the question with respect to any generation, it's it's really the same. We want we mm-hmm. want the readers of this book to to be more equipped uh, to help young people be apprentices uh, to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. To be to learn how mm-hmm. to be like Him, Amen. and and to mature in their faith and to love Him. Uh, with their hearts, souls, and minds, and uh, to love their neighbors as themselves, and 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 that's true for what I just said. There is true for all believers, no matter what the age, right? And so, uh, the fact that this is focused on Gen Z, it, it, we're not making a case that Gen Z, discipling Gen Z is more important than discipling other generations. It's rather they're just who's up next. It's it's they're they're who's up next, and because of the way that the world is different, uh, we have to be asking ourselves as Christ followers who disciple them, what does what does discipleship right now in this post Christian mm. era look like? What are the timeless truths yeah. that we've always used in discipleship? But then what are some methods, perhaps, that might need to change a little bit in order for Gen Z to really understand what does it look like to follow our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and become more like him over the course of a lifetime? Hmm. That's really good. That's really good. Okay, I have one more question for you. Uh, but before we do that, I know that my listeners are going to want to follow uh, you and the Institute on the interwebs. What's the best way that they can get uh, learn more about your ministry? Where, where should they go to purchase the book? And how can they support what God's doing through this platform? Yes, yes. Thanks for asking. The best place to go to find out more about the Institute would be our website, Impact360. That's impact360.org. And you'll find everything uh, that you want to know about our institute, our programs, 
Uh, there are some, there are lots of free resources on the website. Uh, there's a Gen Z lab that you can sign up for free and, uh, and get some, some really helpful videos and, and uh, tutorials, uh, really well done. Uh, as far as the book is concerned, any, any of the major booksellers online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, books a million, uh, are, the book is available there. No be live. Excellent. 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 Now, what about you? If they want to learn more about you personally, uh, any, any places online where you hang out publicly, it's okay if you don't. Uh, I do. I do. Uh, I don't have my own website anymore. Uh, I, I got a little too busy and had to, had to drop that. But if you'd like to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn and you can just, uh, do a search for, uh, John Basie, B-A-S-I-E, and it'll pop right up. Great. And we'll link to all that in the, we'll link to all that in the show notes. I'm on uh, Facebook okay. as well. Last question I always loved. Oh, great. Facebook as well. We'll make a note there. Uh, last question. I always love to ask people. It's an advice question. Mm. Um, and you have to give yourself one piece of advice, but I get to pick the, the day that I, that you have to give it. And so I would like to take you back um, to your very first day of teaching Hmm. Right. And, and you just spent your very first day teaching uh, higher education. You've got this brand new group of freshmen standing right in front of you. Exhausting day, I'm sure. And at the end of the day, if you could go back and, and give that younger version of John one piece of advice for the journey he's about to go on. What's the piece of advice? Yeah, great question. I think what it would have to be, Tony, is. I would say to that younger version of me, don't, don't over prepare. There's always, there's always an impulse on the part of, of professors to, or I should say there, there's usually, there's usually an impulse on the part of teachers, professors to over prepare and, and thus thinking that, the delivery of the information is the main thing that we're doing. And over the years, as mm. I've grown in my, my teaching and understood more and more, and I certainly haven't arrived, but I do think the Lord has helped me in this regard. As I've understood what intellectual discipleship really is, it is walking alongside students. It's not merely presenting information. It includes that. But too much of a focus on presenting information correctly can become uh, it, it can become a little bit of a distraction, sometimes a major distraction to building relationships in the class. And if a if if, if a class of students senses that you want to walk alongside them, uh, they're going to learn far more than if you are just a really fantastic information presenter. Uh, the old adage, I guess, is, is be, be a guide on the side, not a sage on the stage. And, mm. and that's the advice I would give to myself uh, if, if I could do it, um, if I could go back in time and do that. That's so good, man. Uh, we, we covered a lot of ground today. I'm so appreciative of your work. Uh, I'm appreciative for Gen Z and 
my son, who will be uh, the aforementioned alpha generation, he's 15 and a half. And man, I just know how important this work is. And I'm, I'm super thankful for your generosity today and all the work that you and your team are putting into the, the next generation of making disciples. So John, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tony. And I'm encouraged by your ministry. And it's just an honor to be with you today. Man, I love John's heart for the next generation. I love the way that he shows up for them. I love the perspective. And I I really think that his newest resource, Know, Be, Live, is going to be something that you'll want to get your hands on. So do me a favor, follow him up, hit him on socials, let him know that you heard him here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. Leave a rating or review on iTunes. Those really do make a difference. And as always, the highest compliment you can give us, share this episode with a friend. Thank you guys so much for being part of our community. And remember, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.